The following message is by Justin Duran, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We are just going to dig right in to our section of Scripture this morning. Now, as some of you... Uh, may know, and uh, some of you may not, and you're about to know, I, I used to enjoy training and, and participating in MMA, mixed martial arts. I did that in an amateur way, and, and I would fight, and it was a lot of fun. I very much enjoyed fighting. I very much enjoyed the physical aspect of training. And during that time, uh, I knew a guy, I trained with a guy who had a reputation for being a very, very skilled fighter. I'm just going to set that down there so it doesn't keep doing that. Uh, he, had a, he, he had a reputation of being an extremely skilled fighter. Uh, he was a relatively young guy. Uh, he was older than I was at the time, but still he was only in his late 20s, early 30s, and I was in my early 20s. And he was one of the trainers at a school where I trained. Uh, and he had been the star pupil of the owner of the gym. Now, the walls, if you ever went into this place, most of the walls were either mirrored or bared, but the areas where uh, the walls were not mirrored or where people wouldn't work out against the walls, there was uh, different cabinets or cases or, or picture frames, and the walls were just littered with, with pictures of this guy and his fights and articles that had been written about him, different awards that he had received, a belt that he had received from a local tournament, uh, a local tournament that was known to be a very tough tournament, one where a lot of UFC fighters are kind of picked up out of that local tournament in Southern California. And, uh, and so the, the, just the whole gym was really kind of littered with accolades for this guy. Uh, and apparently, as the, the walls and the records had shown, he, out of 40 fights, now 40 fights, if you don't know anything about fighting, that's a lot of fights. 40 fights is a lot of fights. Many professional fighters go their entire professional career maybe only fighting between 10 and 15 fights. Uh, and so 40 fights is a lot of fights. And out of 40 fights, this guy had only ever lost one. Um, he, had a, he had this really tremendous record. And then uh, he became a partial owner of the gym. And all the time at the gym, we would have these guys uh, that would come and, and want to take a run at him. Uh, they would want to fight him. They'd want to spar him, not in a contentious way, but in a competition kind of way. Uh, and so we would have uh, these sparring sessions or these in-house tournaments. Uh, but like a lot of gyms, the place where I was at had kind of house rules that kept that from happening. It, it kept basically the rules of the gym prevented people from just calling out anybody within the gym uh, and fighting them. So that way you didn't get these kind of huge disparities in skill level. And then also uh, you, you didn't risk your best fighters either being uh, uh, injured or worn out before a fight. Uh, because even if you're a very skilled fighter, if you're fighting a guy that's just going crazy, you can, you'll probably win, but you could still be injured. And you don't want to do that before you have uh, any kind of tournaments or, or competitions going on. It just kind of insulates everybody from what's going on there. But every few months, because this guy was one of the partial owners of the gym, what he would do is he would basically, it's called opening up his ticket. He'd open up his ticket, which basically means he would offer up the opportunity for anybody to fight him. Didn't matter their weight class, didn't matter anything. He would offer up the opportunity for anybody to fight him. <clears throat> and and the, the understanding was that nobody was going to be able to beat him. But he would say that if you could earn his respect, if you could earn his respect in the ring, then you could train for free. Now, that's kind of a big deal, because if you're training in a good gym, this could cost you a lot of money, anywhere between $3,500 and $6,500 a year. Uh, and that's, you know, 300 bucks plus a month. That's a lot of money, and that's a big deal. Uh, and so during the time, I trained in this gym for three years, and uh, 
And I'd heard all this time about how good this guy was and, and seen him train people, how he couldn't really be beat was the general consensus. And anybody would be a fool to get in the ring with him. And I'd seen him make this offer about a half a dozen times. And for a long time, nobody took him up on the offer. Every few months he would come out, he'd make the offer. It wasn't like a braggadocious thing. He wasn't strutting and peacocking around the place, but he was a little bit, I guess, just by making, just by making that kind of offer. And nobody took him up on it. Uh, and, and it wasn't because he necessarily trained hard. I mean, he would train, he was a trainer, but it, he wasn't one of the fighters that was training super hard. And, and it's not because a lot of people just saw him with a tremendous work ethic. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when you are working and laboring or training alongside somebody that has a tremendous work ethic, that could be intimidating, right? Just th those kinds of people that won't be outworked. That wasn't necessarily this guy. It, it's not that he was currently an active fighter with a tremendous record. He had previously been an active fighter with a really spectacular record. But because he had a reputation for being highly skilled, tough as nails, and nearly unbeatable with only one loss out of 40 fights, nobody really ever took him up on the challenge. Now, I'm sure you've probably figured out now the way this story is going to go and why I'm telling it. Somebody finally did accept his challenge. And when somebody finally did accept his challenge, the fight lasted less than two rounds. Uh, and, and it was essentially a massacre where this unbeatable trainer kind of got slapped around and tossed around the ring for about four minutes before the guy fighting him just decided to put him out of his misery and submitted him and he tapped out. Now, he had everyone around him convinced because of his reputation that he couldn't be beat. Now, let me ask you, does this mean that he was all talk? Does this mean that he just kind of had a braggadocious attitude and, and he was all talk? That he was never really as good as he claimed to be? No, that's not true. I can tell you, this guy was good. I, I'd seen him fight. Uh, I'd seen the fight tapes. Uh, I, I'd seen the fighters that he had trained. Uh, he taught me personally things that made me a better fighter and a better trainer. He knew things about fighting and about the efficiency of body mechanics that you can really only learn if you've done it. You can't learn it from watching it or reading a book or even practicing by yourself. There are certain things about being in a fight that you just have to do to know. And he knew those things. See, at one time, he was a really good fighter. At one time, he probably was unbeatable or darn near it. But reputation alone doesn't win a fight. All the things he had previously accomplished really didn't mean that he could stop putting in the same level of work, stop putting in the same level of intensity, stop putting in the same level of dedication, and expect the same results that he had previously enjoyed. The things that someone has done in the past don't guarantee their standing in the future, especially when you're engaged in a fight. But it's easy to start to think that way, isn't it? It's really easy to start to think that way. When we've done something so many times, when we put in so much work, when it, when it starts to seem like it's not as difficult as it used to be, it can really easily start to feel like we can just rest a little bit, like we can sit back on our laurels, so to speak, and we can ride the wave of the work that we've already done. 
as we look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning, we're going to see that it seems like a very similar mindset had started to take hold in the church at Sardis. And the problem had become so acute that, that many people within the church were more than just fooling themselves. As a matter of fact, they they were actually dead in their faith, the Bible tells us. But before we dig into that, let's learn a little bit about Sardis to give us some context. Because I believe that the context of their community, the context of the place in which the church was located, contributed greatly to the downfall of the church. And I think that there's a massive caution that we, a church in one of the most decadent and worldly areas uh, on the entire planet, I think there's much that we can, can learn and there are some huge cautions that we can take away from the idea of a church behaving much or too much like the community that surrounds it. So let's learn a little bit about Sardis. Sardis was a really wealthy city, a very wealthy city. And when I say that they were a, a very wealthy city, I mean they were an extremely wealthy city, and they were a major point of commerce throughout the region. They were so wealthy and so important to the economic disposition of the area that uh, in 17 AD, there was a big earthquake that basically leveled uh, the city. And the emperor at the time, Emperor Tiberius, donated tremendous amounts of aid and, and monetary resources and physical resources and laborers to build the city in what would have been considered record time for the area. He, to rebuild that city and get it back on its feet and get it back in the game, so to speak, as far as the economy is concerned. He donated just tremendous amounts of resources from that. From 560 BC all the way to 546 BC, it had been the capital city uh, of this man named Croesus, who was the king of Lydia. And, and, and just a little bit about him, he was known, renowned all throughout the world for his tremendous wealth. And so he founded this city as his capital city. And it's so from its inception, from the moment that it had first been built, this idea was that it was a very wealthy place. On top of that, Sardis was literally a city built on a hill. It was literally built on a, on a cliff face, really at the edge of this very steep cliff. And by all perceptions, it should have been next to impossible for that city to be captured or conquered or sacked. However, perhaps because of this perceived uh, strength, and largely in part it would seem to the, the, the lethargy of the people that lived in Sardis, the citizenry of of Sardis allowed their city to be captured at least twice, at least twice. And both times, they were actually captured in the exact same way. So their city was captured by enemy forces twice in the exact same way. In uh, 549 BC, Cyrus, the Persian, conquered them. And in in uh, 218 BC, Antiochus conquered them. And on both occasions, what happened was the enemy troops climbed that sheer cliff, that impassable physical thing that was supposed to keep the city safe. They climbed the sheer, sca- the sheer cliff and scaled it. And, when they, and they did this by night when everyone was sleeping. And when they entered into the city, they found both times the city to be completely guardless, completely void of guard. We know that from historical uh, documents that this is, a, this is a, a case that both of these things were very well documented. So in 549 BC and later in 218 BC, the same city was conquered in the same way 
it seems like they didn't learn their lesson. They're conquered at night when no one's paying attention. They come up the sheer cliff, and that's it. See, Sardis as a city enjoyed relatively long periods, hundreds of years sometimes, relatively long periods of peace and prosperity. And I think what happened is they grew complacent about how they tended to their priorities. They had this long-standing reputation of being difficult to conquer, and they rested in that reputation. So when we consider the church at Sardis and this letter that we see in the book of Revelation to them, we see some differences here than we see in the letters to the other churches that we've examined so far, whether it be to the church at Ephesus or uh, to the church at Thyatira or, or any of the other churches that we've seen so far. And some of these uh, differences that we see is though Sardis was largely a pagan city, it was still largely a pagan city, they worshipped a, a false Greek goddess named Sybil, and she was this nature goddess. Uh, and, but even though that was the case and they were largely surrounded by pagans, it doesn't seem that the church at Sardis had actually befallen the same kind of persecutions that either the church at Smyrna or, or uh, Pergamum, Pergamum had suffered. And we are also not given indica indi indication. We're also not given any indication uh, that that any heresies were being propagated within the church, like we saw with the church at Ephesus. Neither does it seem that the church was engaged in, in any act of permitting any kind of sexual immor immorality or participating in any kind of sexual immorality, like they were at Thyatira. It actually seems, all things considered that the church at Sardis had a relatively easy existence. We have no biblical or historic indication of any hardships in Sardis really whatsoever. And while, like in every place, I'm sure that there were many individuals that knew hardships, that knew trials, many, much like many of us here in this room are today undergoing those things, the city as a whole and the church at large seemed to enjoy a life of comfort and ease. Now, I think that this, in large part, due to this, this, this comfort and this ease that the church at Sardis had, had been enjoying for so long, they grew slack in their faith. You see, there's this subtle temptation to start to take it easy or to grow complacent that starts to take root. It's not always present, but it becomes ever more present and starts to be most present when there seems that there's nothing to worry about. Do you ever struggle with that in your own life? When things are going easy, when things are going well, it's a little bit easier to skip morning prayer, isn't it? When, when, when everything is okay and you don't have a lot of struggles in your life, well, it's easier to kind of forget that you need to be in devotion in the Bible or, or, or when everything's going easy and everything's going well and you don't have a lot of problems going on in your life or in your marriage or in your work and that Sunday football game comes on, the pews start to look a little thin with people, don't they? It's this very subtle temptation that starts to creep in. When you have comfort and ease, you start to grow complacent. But what's, what's a better example of this than what, uh, what I'm kind of giving right now as far as going on in the church. Well, you don't have to look any further than our current economy as a nation. 
not as a church, but as a nation, our current economy. Do you remember just a handful of years ago, particularly in this area, uh, there were people that were dealing with a lot of hard times. Uh, one, of, one of the moving parts of, of Pastor Bob's uh, testimony he dealt a lot with that, just good people who hadn't really made mistakes of, of their own that were just falling under really, really hard times. And we saw as a nation during this great recession that happened, a lot of people start to tighten the belt. And a lot of the things that we were known for as a nation in excess started to kind of diminish. And there was this whole kind of generation of people being brought up that said, like, I'm never going to live on credit. I'm only going to spend what I have. And there was a new kind of national emphasis on fiscal responsibility. Does it feel that same way right now in our economy? If you're paying attention at all, I like to consider myself an amateur economist. People are spending at crazy rates far more than they actually have in their pocket. People are extending themselves out in credit because interest rates are at historic lows. And what happens, we're going to see it over and over again, that eventually there's a course correction in the economy and, and people are going to suffer again. See, when things are easy, when money comes easy, when loans come easy, when faith comes easy... We can start to grow complacent in the ways that we were safeguarding ourselves before. People are living high on the hog again. And it seems like something similar was spiritually happening at the church in Sardis. So as we dig into the passage this morning, we're going to examine a few points. First, we're going to see that the attributes of God are what uphold and uplift his church. Next, we're going to see that a church that rests in its reputation is a church that is already dead or is in the process of dying. The next thing that we'll see is Christ will come against a church that rests in its previous works. We'll also see that Jesus will always, always remain the deliverer of his faithful servants. And finally, we'll see, much as we saw last week, that our merciful Savior continually offers opportunities for repentance. So the first thing that I said we'd be looking at, the attributes of God are what uphold and uplift his church. Look with me, if you will. Revelation chapter three, starting in verse one. And it says, and to the angel of the church at Sardis, right? So to the angel, to the messenger, uh, we've, uh, Pastor Cliff did an excellent job of kind of explaining what this meant. Uh, this is somebody that was given the message to take it to the church. This could have been a pastor, an elder, uh, a deacon. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how that uh, worked because we're not given that indication, but it's this idea of a messenger to the church in Sardis, write this, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, uh, other pastors that have come before me, the other elders have, have done a good job of explaining these seven stars and what that looks like, but I want to focus a little bit on this idea of the seven spirits. It says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. And this verse seems to, to cause a lot of confusion for people. And I guess at first glance, I can understand why it would cause some confusion for people. When the Bible says that God has seven spirits, it could kind of throw us for a loop, right? The whole Bible that we've seen up until this point, we've only heard that God has one spirit, right? God's Holy Spirit. And now it says there's seven. Well, have we really heard through the whole Bible that God has only one spirit? And some of my other elders are starting to sweat. Don't worry, guys, it's safe, I promise. <laughs> See, I'm going to tell you something right now that's going to seem uh, uh, super, super simple. And the truth is it seems simple because it really is. But uh, 
Keeping this kind of thing in mind has been extremely helpful to me as I have sought to study the Bible and effectively teach it to people. Whenever I'm studying a section of Scripture uh, and I come up against uh, something or, or I'm trying to better understand it or I come up against something that maybe I think I haven't seen before or that I don't understand well, I ask myself three questions. And today, I'm going to give you one of those three questions. If you want the other two, you're going to have to come back the next time I'm preaching. Maybe you'll hear it then, okay? Today, you get one uh, free, free lesson right now. For uh, what you have to do is anytime you come up against a question, you run up against something confusing, a section of Scripture that, that seems to oppose something that you've already read, here it is. Are you ready? You ask yourself, what does the Bible have to say about this? What does the Bible have to say about this? Now, I know that that seems kind of like a cop-out and that it doesn't seem like it answers the question, but before you start booing me or throwing things at me or walking out the door, I just want you to follow my logic a little bit here, and I promise that uh, that it's going to make sense in just a second. See, when I say to ask yourself, what does the Bible say about this? We have to start with something that is kind of a base understanding for Christians. This is kind of Christianity 101. And that thing that we have to understand is that God is unchanging. God is unchanging. We, we know that God's word is unchanging. His character is unchanging. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, it says it this way. God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? See, this is a verse that tells us that God's word is absolute and unchanging. When God says something, that's it. When God makes a promise, that promise will be fulfilled. When God gives a command, that command is written in eternity. God's word is unchanging. Next, we see that God's character is also unchanging. Hebrews 13.8 says it this way so beautifully. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And James 1.17 Chapter 117 says this, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, I could keep going on and on like this, but I think that we can all agree at this point that the Bible teaches us over and over that God is unchanging. Can we agree on that? Good. I see shaking heads. I'm glad to see people are awake. Ecstatic. We can all agree on that. And I think it's also fair to say that God has repeated himself more than once on a great number of topics. Is that fair to say? We just saw three instances in which God has repeated himself in in assuring us that he's unchanging in all his attributes. But on top of that, how many times uh, or in how many ways have we been told to, to remain sexually pure or not to be given to drunkenness? How many times and how many different ways have we told been told to be generous, to be kind, to be forgiving, to be faithful? Over and over and over, God repeats himself. Now, in in this thing that we call the Bible, this is God's holy word, and it's given to us. But in addition to being God's word, it's also an absolutely reliable account of how God has interacted with his people all the way back to the very beginning. All the way back to the very beginning. And if you don't believe me on that part, you can look at Genesis 1-1, where it starts literally with the words, in the beginning. This book is an account of how God has interacted with his people all the way since the start of everything. So we've established that God and his word are unchanging and God repeats himself and that the Bible chronicles a long history of interactions between God and his people. So wouldn't it stand to reason, follow with me here, 
If you come up against a section of scripture that confuses you or, or that presents you with something that you've never heard, nothing, something that maybe you've never considered before, or something that you consider to be in opposition to something else you know to be true, don't you think it's fair to say that with all of this unchanging repetition and steadfast word of God as he chronicles uh, his interaction with his people throughout history, that maybe it was mentioned somewhere else? Maybe this thing that you're confused about might be somewhere else. Oh, but Pastor Justin, this is the book of Revelation that we're looking about. It's all new stuff. It's a new revelation. Well, friends, I want to remind you, God is unchanging. God is unchanging. He's already told us that. So if God is unchanging, then that means much of what he tells us here in the book of Revelation will likely at least be referenced somewhere else in the Bible. That's almost always the case, and it's absolutely the case here with verse 1 of chapter 3. So if you'll turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 11, we're just looking at verses 1 and 2, so you don't even have to look hard. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see, we're going to use the Bible to help us understand what could otherwise be a kind of confusing verse when it talks about the seven spirits of God. Isaiah 11.1, 1, reading out of the ESV, says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Starting in verse 2, it says this, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, if you guys are quick with counting and you were reading along with that, did you catch how many there were there? I'll give you a hint. It was seven. See, there are seven spirits of God that we see here in Isaiah. The, the first one that we see is the spirit of the Lord that is present with his people. Friends, if you are a Christian today, if you have been saved by God's grace, if you have professed your faith, if you uh, believe and have repented of your sinfulness and, and you obey God, then I want you to understand that God is present with you. As a church, as, a believer, as believers uh, gathered here in this place together, as we saw and heard Pastor Cliff preach about when he talked uh, in Revelation chapter 1, this idea that, that Christ walks and moves among his people in his church. The Spirit of the Lord is present with his people and so that's one aspect of God, one attribute of the Spirit of the Lord, that he is present with his people. The next is the spirit of wisdom that we see in Isaiah. That's number two. Third is the spirit of understanding. Four, the spirit of counsel. Five, the spirit of strength. Six, the spirit of knowledge. And seven, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven spirits of God. This doesn't mean that there are seven distinct additional persons in the Godhead. This means that they, these are, are seven attributes, seven dispositions, seven spirits of God. And friends, all of these spirits of God, as we look at, at the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it starts with this, because all of these attributes, all of these uh, um, dispositions of God's spirit must be present for a church to be upheld and uplifted. This is how Christ begins his address to the church at Sardis, reminding them and us as a result 
that he is the lifeblood of the church, that he is the focus and the object of our worship. He is for whom we labor, not ourselves and not the world. It is God, he who holds seven spirits, these spirits of being ever-present with his people and wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. It is, it is he who upholds and uplifts and enables and equips his church. I told you the next thing that we see is that a church that rests in its reputation is a church that is already dead or is dying. It's already dead or it's dying. He says... Uh, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So it seems as if the church at Sardis had previously been doing things correctly. They had, at least at one time, been focused on the work that they were doing for the sake of the gospel. And they'd been doing the right things. But it would seem that they got lazy and friends, this is something that happens in churches all the time. We come together and we're energized with one another, whatever that thing might be. Maybe it's a new missions trip. Maybe it's a new uh, ministry that's vibrant and is reaching the community in exciting ways. Maybe it's a, a new uh, a preaching series that's engaged and convicted the congregation and spurred them on to, to righteousness. And, and there's this energy that happens in the church. But sometimes... Sometimes we just tend to ride the wave of that energy. We've gotten this big burst of wind into our sails and we're skipping along the surface of the water and we stop adjusting the sails to continue to catch wind and keep moving forward. We get lazy and we just get repetitious. See, much like that trainer that I knew that I told you guys about, it seems like the church at Sardis got to a point where everyone knew how good they were. Everyone knew that they were the church to admire. They were the church to be like. And what's worse is it seems like the church at Sardis knew it too. Now, it's okay, friends, to be the church that people admire. It's okay to be the church that other churches look to for direction. We are a relatively small church, and we have sister churches that are much bigger than us. We look to them for direction occasionally on how to do things. There's wisdom in that. But it seems like what happened at Sardis is they stopped getting after the work of the gospel as hard as they had previously, much like this trainer that I knew. They stopped putting in the sweat. They stopped putting in the blood and the time and the tears and the treasure. They stopped putting in the talent. And once they got the title, they lost their hunger for the sake of the gospel. They stopped fighting. They hung the belt on the wall and they just went about their business. Scripture also suggests to us that they were looking over their shoulder and they were pointing at the things they had previously done as if those things should sustain them in their good standing for some reason. Now this is an incredibly dangerous way to do things. As a matter of fact, in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7, verse 10, the Bible warns us against this kind of thing. Uh, it's saying, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Friends, a mark of a very unhealthy or dying or dead church 
is the idea that they always want to talk about the glory years, the golden age of their ministry, when things just worked better and the young families were coming and all the things were working right and they were sending out the missionaries and they were doing all of these things while they're currently doing nothing. Now, it's not a problem for us to look back to see what we've done to encourage one another in those things, particularly when we're feeling defeated. As brothers and sisters in the church, when we're feeling defeated or we're feeling discouraged, it's okay to remind us of where we've been and what we've accomplished in God's grace for the sake of his kingdom. I'm not talking about churches that do that. I'm talking about there are churches, and it seems that Sardis may have been one of them, that keep pointing over their shoulder and saying, I know we're not doing anything now, but remember when we did this other stuff? I know we're not sending anyone now, but remember when we sent all those other people I know we're not giving anything now, but, but remember last year when we gave so much? I, I know the preaching's hurting now, but remember 10 years ago when the preaching was really good? This is a mindset that starts to work within the church, and it seems like Sardis was struggling with this. But this is a terrible place to be because if we look at the next section of Scripture, we see something that, that should be quite terrifying. In the second half of verse 2 and on into verse 3, it says this of Revelation chapter 3. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, as Pastor Derek reminded us last week, we see this phrase that's terrifying. This idea that Christ says he will come against his church. It's terrifying. It should make us take notice and see what's going on here. What on earth would cause our Redeemer, our Savior, our Deliverer to say to his people, I will come against you like a thief? Well, it's right in the beginning of that section. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. See, Christ will come against a church that rests in its previous works. I want you to see something that Christ says here. The works were not complete. Now, now many commentators, as I've been studying for this uh, sermon and as I've been digging into all the letters to the seven churches, many commentators uh, have said that this indicates that many at the church uh, of Sardis were doing works but perhaps that they were kind of half-hearted works for show or to keep up their reputation. And no disrespect to these brothers who have written these commentaries and books because the truth is, is they're smarter than I'll ever be. They've probably forgotten more about the Bible than I'll ever know. But on this point, I, I just don't buy that line. I just don't buy it. And, and, and let me tell you why. Because that description of, of half-hearted works, it's actually addressed later to another church in this very chapter. And we'll see in a couple of weeks that the, Christ, the language that Christ uses when he addresses half-hearted works, it's drastically different than the language that he uses here to the church at Sardis. See, I don't think that Sardis was doing half-hearted works to keep up a show. I think that they had stopped working. This is why Christ is telling them, your works are not yet complete. They're not complete. See, Sardis was behaving as if they had already arrived. Sardis was behaving as if they had done the work and they had reached the finish line. 
that they had finished the race and they were just waiting for their accolades. They were waiting for their wreath and for their, for their medal. They were waiting to hear, well done, my good and faithful servants. But in fact, Christ says, you haven't even finished the job yet. You're not finished. Your works are not complete in the sight of my God. And then what he says is that if they don't figure it out, if they don't wake up, it's this idea when we look at the language of, of wake up, it really means, uh, it's, it's, it's tough in the literal translation, but, but it basically is saying if they, if they don't come to realize, if they don't see what's going on, if they don't open their eyes, if they don't wake up, if they don't wake up, it says, I will come like a thief and, I will not, and you will not know the hour at which I come against you. Now, I want you to remember that for the Sardians, for the, for the members of the church at Sardis, this would be very, language that would be very familiar to them. He's using language that talks about when they're sleeping and coming like a thief and that they won't know the hour. And remember that I told you twice in the history of this city, they were conquered how? When they were not awake and paying attention. And someone came and they didn't know the hour and they were sacked and they were conquered. Christ is using language here that would be extremely familiar to the church at Sardis, to the members of this community. The implications of this are terrifying because he's saying, like happened to you before when someone came and laid waste to your city, I'll come and do the same thing to the church if you don't wake up. The next thing that we see blessedly in this section of Scripture is that Jesus will always remain the deliverer of his faithful servants. Jesus will always remain the deliverer of his faithful servants. Look, at, look with me, if you will, starting in verse 4 of chapter 3. Verse 4 of chapter 3 says this. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has uh, Spirit says to the churches. See, this is a beautiful reminder, friends, a beautiful reminder that even though Christ is giving this, this rebuke to the church at large, we're reminded that Christ is not only the king of the universe, not only the king of the church, but he is also the king of the hearts of his people. Christ knows your heart, and he sees, he tells us right in the beginning of this section, or he tells rather the church at Sardis, that I know your works. And when he uses this language, I know your works, it's, it's two types of language that we see here, collectively for the church, and then also for the individual. And we see that accented here in verse 4, that there are still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. It's this idea, people who have not become unclean in the sight of the Lord. People who are still putting in the work. People who are still putting in the sweat and the blood and the tears. People who are still laboring for the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He sees that those people are in Sardis. And so we see simultaneously happening here in this letter 
an encouragement for those who might be hearing this letter going, but Lord, but Lord, I'm, I'm doing everything. We hear an encouragement for those people. There are still faithful people in Sardis and Christ is encouraging them. But on top of that, he's giving an additional provision to those members of the church at Sardis who are not laboring as they should. He's saying, look around you because there are people here that you can follow an example. Look around you because there are people here who are continuing to do the work. They haven't soiled themselves. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And then it goes on to talk about the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. It's this idea that Christ will deliver his faithful servants and he continually offers the opportunity for repentance, for correction, for coming back. He says, look at these people. There are some among you who are still doing this work. There are some who are laboring and still getting it right. Follow their example. And those of you who conquer, overcome this hurdle. Overcome this lethargy. Overcome this complacency. Then you too, it says, to the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, Christ continually, even when he is warning of his wrath to come, continually is offering the opportunity for repentance and restoration. And friends, repentance and restoration, that is the key of the gospel repentance and restoration to fellowship with God. And that's exactly what he's saying has happened here. To the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He's telling his people, beloved, turn from what you were doing. Start working again. I don't want to come like a thief in the night, but I will because I am a God of justice. And if you don't wake up, then wrath is coming, but you can still wake up and you can overcome this lethargy. And friends, this, this is what Christ has done throughout his entire ministry. Through most of the book of Revelation, we see a different aspect of Christ. But in the letter to the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches, we continually see a Christ, a Savior, who wants for the repentance and restoration of his people Christ is always, always repeating the glory of the gospel since the very beginning all the way to the very end of this book, not the glossary, but Revelation. All the way to the very end, Christ repeats the beauty of the glory of, of, of the gospel, that you were dead and that you were asleep, that you had no idea the sinfulness and the wickedness and, and under which that you were laboring and living and toiling. But because of God's good richness, because of his mercy, because of his grace, he provided a way through Christ that you might be saved. That you might wake up. That you might see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. That those who are called according to his purpose would become conquerors and be clothed in white and never would their name be blotted out from the book of life. Christ reminds us over and over again that the way to his presence, the way to the glory of God, the way to be seated and kneeled before the throne of eternity in heaven is simple. Believe in all that God has told us. 
believe that we are deserving of wrath and that wrath is coming. And instead of sitting under that wrath, repent and be saved. Repent and be restored to fellowship with the God of the universe. And so friends, I charge you this morning, whether you have been a, a member of a church that looks not the way it should have been uh, historically, and now you've come to CBC, or whether in your heart you have a heart that has not looked the way that it should, friends, remember that the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Friends, repent of your sinfulness. And what does that mean? Repentance means a confession, a confession to the Lord that you are wholly inadequate of salvation in and of yourself. Repentance means that you're acknowledging the fact that you need a Savior and you're seeking out the forgiveness that only He can give. You repent. You believe. Believe all that He has commanded. You obey all that He has commanded. And in your belief and your repentance and your restoration, friends, you can know eternity with Christ. As our brother Cliff uh, prepares uh, to come up for the Lord's Supper, friends, I would just encourage you to uh, be in prayer with me. And friends, whether it's in your family or in your church or in your personal life, if you have begun to move away from the works that you did, if you've begun to rest in your faith, wake up. Wake up. Take Christ seriously when he says that he will come like a thief and that you will not know the hour. Take the Bible seriously when it repeats itself over and over and over that God's wrath is deserved by those who are the sons of disobedience. And friends, as you believe those things, repent of your sinfulness. Obey and be restored. Let us pray. Awesome and amazing God. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we acknowledge entirely that whether as individuals or as organizations that we often fall short. Lord, that we get lazy and complacent sometimes. And God, we repent. God, forgive us of lethargy. Stir within us anew a passion for you, a passion for the works of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a passion for the sake of the glory of your name. Lord, would we ever at CBC be servants that toil joyously for you? Would it never be said of us, Lord, that we sit on our reputation? And instead, Lord, until you come, would we be a church that works our fingers to the bone? Would we toil would we scrape? Would we save? Would we be generous and kind? And Lord, for those of us who have yet to believe, yet to repent, yet to obey, then God, I would just pray that even now by the power of your Spirit, the Spirit that dwells among your people, would also, Lord, you stir in the hearts of those who are lost the Spirit of wisdom and the spirit of the fear of the Lord, would they come to a true belief even as we sit here now, Lord? And would you call them according to your purpose to salvation? 
would they repent and would we all move together forward in obedience? We love you. We praise you. It is only your name that we bring glory. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.